Uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John uh, gives us a clear, the writer of the Gospel of John gives us a clear purpose for why he wrote this Gospel. Why don't you turn with me to the very end of the book of John, chapter 20. I'm going to read from verse 30 and 31. John says this. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. But these are written, the record of Jesus' signs are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the purpose for why John wrote the Gospel of John. He wants you to believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, and by believing, you may have life, eternal life, in his name. But what exactly does John write? What does he record? Well, verse 30 tells us that he records the signs that Jesus did. Now turn with me back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is a very famous account of Jesus turning water into wine at the dinner in Cana in Galilee. But notice how John, the writer of the gospel, explains the significance of what happens here. Look at John chapter 2, verse 11. He says this. John chapter 2, 11. This, the turning from water into wine, was the first of his signs, the first of Jesus' signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And what was the purpose of this sign? Jesus, it says, manifested, or another translation has it, he revealed his glory. He showed us who he really is. And as a result, his disciples, his followers, believed in him. So this is the first of Jesus' signs. In fact, some scholars call John chapter 1, 19 to 12, 50, the book of signs. Why? Because one of the key features of this section of the gospel is John's record of seven miraculous signs that Jesus does. And he does these miraculous signs, not just to show that he's a wonder worker. He does these seven miraculous signs to show us something of who he is and what he has come to do. He shows us these signs to reveal his glory, to show us who he is in order to engender faith that his disciples, his followers, might believe in him. So what is a sign? A sign is a miracle that points us to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Jesus has come to show us God. Jesus has come to show us that he is the Son of God who has come to bring eternal life. But friends, I want to submit to you that as you read John chapter 2, you need to take it in its entirety. You cannot just consider the wedding at Cana in absentia from Jesus cleansing the temple and later his evaluation of what is true and false faith. You need to take the entire chapter together. And as you take the entire chapter together, you discover that what Jesus is doing here is not just showing that he can change one form of liquid to another. He's showing us what true religion is. He's showing us what it really means to relate rightly to Almighty God through him as our Savior and as our Lord. You'll recall two weeks ago when we were considering the prologue of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Jesus came... To his own. He came to the Jewish people. He came to the religious people. And the way the religious people responded to him was that they did not receive him. Now this is shocking, isn't it? Jesus, as a Jew, comes as the Messiah to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people did not receive him. Which tells us, friends, 
that perhaps the kind of religion that Jesus is bringing may not be the kind of religion that we expect to be true. Now, friends, some of us have grown up in church. Some of us are new to church, and we're kind of exploring the Christian faith. We have before us in the Gospel of John a fantastic opportunity for both of us. You know why? Because for those of us who have grown up with religion and grown up in church, we may not really get the Gospel. We may not really understand who Jesus Christ is. And for those of you who may be exploring the faith or have been pushed away from the faith because you've observed Christians that have acted in ways that you are not palatable to you, perhaps what you've rejected is not the true gospel, but a caricature of the faith. Friends, what Jesus is inviting us to today and for the rest of our series in the Gospel of John is to see religion as he sees it, to see Christianity as he presents it, to see what true religion is. And as we travel through this text, I wanted to show you, I want to show you that what Jesus is doing here is showing us the nature of true religion. There are three things that Jesus says about true religion. The first thing is that true religion is joyful, verse 1 to 12. Second, that it is zealous, verse 13 to 22. And thirdly, it is genuine, verse 23 to 25. Come with me to John chapter 2, verse 1. The story here begins with Jesus, his mother, and his disciples at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Now, we're not told who the bridegroom and the bride are, but the fact that Jesus and all his disciples were invited and were at the wedding, and it seems like Mary, his mother, was involved in the food preparation, seems to indicate that this was a relative of Jesus Christ. So here he was at a relative's wedding, celebrating a first century Palestinian wedding. Now in first century Palestine, the weddings could last from up to one or two weeks. Okay, very intense and very long, a lot of celebration. It tells him in verse 3 that the wine ran out. Now, if you were organizing your wedding and towards the center part of your wedding, the wine runs out, you may feel a bit embarrassed. A few of your friends may look at you funny, but it's no big deal, right? In first century Palestine, this would have been devastating. You see, in this traditional shame and honor culture, to not be able to give hospitality to your guests would have brought shame, not just on you, but your entire family. You see, what happens is this. Your wedding guests would travel from afar. And they would bring expensive wedding gifts. They would give these wedding gifts to you. And in exchange, you were obligated, even legally, to ensure that the food and drink would flow freely throughout the duration of the wedding. So the fact that the wine runs out means that this family, Jesus' own family, is now on the verge of being shamed, is now on the verge of being ostracized. And in a shame and honor culture, this is devastating. It could mean the end of their standing in the society of their day. Do you know why? What does it mean when the wine runs out? If the wine runs out, it shows that you couldn't really afford this wedding in the first place. That your wedding is a kind of a sham. You've invited your friends and your family to this great and grand celebration. They've come from afar. They've brought all their gifts. And you are supposed to give this this grand celebration. But then halfway through, they begin to realize, hey, he can't really afford this wedding. It's a bit of a sham. You're being exposed as an imposter. You're being exposed for trying to put yourself forward as having more means 
than you really do. And that's why Mary, the mother of Jesus, is very anxious here. She comes to Jesus and she says to him in anxiety, they have no wine. It's running out. The family is going to be shamed. Jesus, you must do something. Now that's not shocking. What's shocking is Jesus' response to his mom. And some kids sitting here, let me just say to you, this is not the way you talk to your mother, okay? Because you are not Jesus. Look at verse 4. How does Jesus answer his mother? He says, woman, oh my goodness. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What in the world is Jesus doing here? Why is he calling his mother woman? And what is this business of the hour? What does that have to do with wine? Anyway, my friends, some commentators try to soften it. They try to point out that the woman, the word woman here is not so jarring in its original language. In its original, you maybe have the sense of madam or dear woman. But the point is, Jesus doesn't call Mary mother here or mommy or mama, right? He calls her woman. He is trying to establish a kind of relational distance between himself and Mary. What's he saying here? He's saying, friends, he's saying to Mary, Mary, I will help. I will help. But I'm not going to help because I'm your son. I'm not going to help because you have interceded for these people on their behalf. I'm going to help because I'm going to help. I'm going to help not because I'm the son of Mary. I'm going to help because I'm the son of God. And in this subtle exchange, Jesus reveals to us that he's not just the son of Mary, he's the son of God. Whatever miracle he's about to do is on his terms. It's not because his mother persuaded him or cajoled him. It's because Jesus will save the day because he is the son of God. He's revealing to us, and much more than the son of Mary, he is the son of the living God. He is God himself, as we saw in John chapter 1. He's establishing a certain relational distance from her to show Mary, hey, I'm going to help, but it's not going to be because of you. It's going to be because of me, I, as the Son of God. And the next thing he does, he talks about the hour. My hour has not yet come. Now, what in the world does this have to do with wine? Now, as you read on in the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, verse 38, verse 20, 12, verse 23 and 27, 13, verse 1, 17 verse 1. Don't worry, I'll give you the reference after the service during the uh, potluck. As you read on in the Gospel of John, you begin to see that this hour always refers to the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. What does that have to do with the wine running out? Jesus is saying, whatever miracle I'm going to do now is not the key and main purpose for which I come. What I'm going to do in this miracle is going to point forward to something greater, something more drastic, something more fantastic that really does fix the problem. I will turn water into wine. I will cover their shame. But that's not the main reason why I came. There is something more that I have come to do. How does Mary respond? She says to her servants, whatever he tells you, go and do it. Do you see what's happened here? There's a subtle repentance in Mary's heart. She begins to realize, even me, as the mother of Jesus, I cannot manipulate Jesus to do what I want him to do. 
He will do what he does. He is the one in charge. So now the the attention focuses on Jesus. Do whatever he tells you to do. It's a subtle recognition that he's the one in charge. And then in verse 6, there is a very important detail here that I don't want you to miss. It says that there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Six stone water jars. These are huge. And these were for the Jewish rites of purification. Jesus takes the water from these jars, and in verses 7 to 8, he changes the drinking water into wine. Now, what is the detail that you cannot miss? The detail is this. Jesus was not changing drinking water to wine. He was changing washing water into wine. It's the water for the Jewish rites of purification. It's the water that the Jews used to bathe themselves or to wash their hands or to wash their things in order to cleanse them, in order to make them acceptable and clean before God. It's not drinking water that Jesus is changing to wine. It's cleansing water. You know, every, almost every religion on earth, it's a very curious thing, whether Eastern or Western, every religion on earth has some form of cleansing ritual. Think about it. Just run through a few religions in your mind. There's always some kind of cleansing ritual. Judaism is no different. Christianity is no different. We have baptism. The point being, every religion has a sense that somehow when we, when we come before deity, when we come before holiness, we are undone. We are unclean. And something in us needs to be cleansed in order for us to be made righteous, to be made right before we can approach a holy deity. You know what this means? This means that this miracle is far more than just changing one liquid to another. Jesus is saying, I've come to change the way that you are made clean before Almighty God. I've come to change water into wine. He doesn't change drinking water into drinking wine. He changes washing water into wine. Now, most religions, as we say, have some kind of a cleansing ritual. But some of you sitting here, you're not religious, you're still exploring the faith. And you say to me, you know, that's that's so primitive, like cleansing, come on, you know, get over it, right? Now, the truth is, you don't need to be religious to feel unclean. I was reading an article uh, in on the internet this week. And the article begins by quoting Shakespeare's Macbeth. Now, those of you who know that play, Lady Macbeth helps to murder King Duncan. And after Duncan's death, she begins to imagine spots on her hand. She tries to assuage that guilt. She tries to wash and scrub as hard as she can. But no matter what she tries, she cannot scrub away what she perceives to be spots on her hand. She cries out, Will my hands never be clean? Now, the article continues to quote uh, Stanley Rackman, who was once professor of psychology of the Institute of Psychiatry in King's College, London. Now, Rackman, he explains that there's a phenomenon of patients feeling unclean even though there's no physical contaminants, right? They haven't touched anything dirty, but they feel dirty, and some of them are then prone to, to washing their hands over and over and over again. Rackman calls this mental contamination, mental contamination. And this is how he puts it. It is a feeling of internal dirtiness caused by a psychological or physical violation. 
The source of the pollution is not an external contaminant. It's not dirt or blood or anything like that. The source is human interaction. Now, what kind of human interaction, Rackman says? Degradation? Humiliation? Hurtful criticism? Betrayal? All of these can cause mental contamination. And patients then experience feelings of dirtiness from direct contact with the person who wronged them or from indirect means, such as images or other reminders of that person. Friends, have you ever felt dirty because you were humiliated or criticized or put down or betrayed by someone else? Friends, you're not alone. You're not alone. You don't need to be religious to feel unclean or unclean. There is something in each and every one of us that recognizes that that there's something not right about us. Tim, Tim Keller puts it this way. You actually know deep down that something is really wrong with you. Why? Why are you working so hard? Why do you need to be right all the time? Why do you worry so much about how you look? It's because you know that there's something wrong and you're trying your best to purify yourself, to prove yourself, to cover it up. If we think hard enough, friends, we know that there's something that's not right and we're trying our best to purify, to prove, to cover it up. Friends, you know as well as I do, no matter how hard we try, we are like Lady Macbeth. Our hands, will they never be clean? We know somehow, no matter how hard we try and how much we've achieved and accomplished, something feels wrong and something feels dirty. Friends, the Bible has the answer to that question. The reason why is because there's something objective about our situation. We have sinned against Almighty God. Now, we don't like to hear the word sin, but without understanding sin, we will never understand the joy of forgiveness. And the Bible says you are unclean, you are unholy, You are undone before a holy God, even if you don't believe in Him, even if you don't acknowledge Him. It's an objective thing. And friends, there's nothing you can do to clean yourself, not even with the rites of purification. The the wine ran out. Now what else does that tell us? The wine ran out. Just like the bridegroom and the bride cannot really afford this party, so this cleansing that you need, this purification that you long for, this sense of I'm okay, I'm all right, I'm acceptable, I'm clean, that cannot come from yourself. Someone else has to do it for you. Someone else has to cover your shame. Someone else has to forgive your sin. Someone else has to honor you. Something must be done. More than that, friends. Wine, in Jewish thought, is a symbol of joy and celebration. It's a symbol of joy and celebration. So during a time of decline in Israel, God sent prophets promising a time of restoration. And one feature of that time is that wine would flow freely. Amos 9, 13 and 14 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Do you know what this is saying? By Jesus turning water into wine, he's saying much more than I'm going to cleanse you. He's saying I'm going to cleanse you and he's going to bring you joy. 
It's a joyful cleansing that I'm bringing. And how does it do it? Look at verse 9. After he changes water into wine, the master of the feast, this is like a maitre d', the head waiter, he tasted the water that had become wine, and he goes, wow. Now this is a man who knows his wine. He's the head waiter. He's so impressed that he approaches the bridegroom in verse 10. And he says to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You know what he's saying? This is what you do, right? You, you kind of hedge your, your bets a bit, right? You serve the good wine first so that your guests think you're so rich, you can afford this vintage. Then as they get more and more drunk, you serve them a lesser and lesser quality of wine and they won't be able to tell the difference because they're already drunk. And what he's saying is, is bridegroom, you have done the opposite. You have not only served good wine in the beginning, you've served the best wine at the end. Number one, very good. He's being given a place of honor. He's being told this is a wine of a great vintage. You have gone over and above. You've spoiled your guests, bravissimo. You have brought wedding hospitality to another level. Or in our local parlance, you spoil market. You've done over and above. You are to be honored as one who has brought honor to yourself and to your family. Do you see what's happened here, my friends? The bridegroom who was on the verge of shame, the bridegroom who was on the verge of humiliation, is now given a place of highest honor as one who has brought honor to himself and to his family. And what did he do to gain that honor? What did he do to cover that shame? Absolutely nothing. Jesus was the one. Jesus was the one that changed water into wine. Behind the scenes. And yet, the honor goes to the bridegroom. The shame is taken away and he is honored. Friends, do you see why the religion that Jesus brings is joyful? It's joyful because, and why wine is such a beautiful symbol of our religion. Because Jesus is saying, you are unclean, you are guilty, you are covered with shame, and you deserve it, and you cannot cleanse yourself, you cannot cover yourself, you cannot do anything to cleanse yourself, to forgive yourself. But I will cleanse you, and I will forgive you, and I will give you honor, and he has got nothing to do with you. It is all me. You receive the honor as a gift. Jesus says true religion is joyful. But the next thing he shows us is that true religion is zealous. The scene moves very quickly from the wedding in Cana and Galilee to the temple during the Passover in Jerusalem. Now it says in the temple, 2.14, that Jesus found those selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now Jesus brought joy to the wedding. He's going to bring something very different to the temple. Verse 15 and 16 says, He made a whip. He drove out the money changers. He overturned the tables, like a scene from Yip Man 4. And he told the pigeon sellers to get out. He warns them, verse 16, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And in verse 17, his disciples watch it. 
And they're reminded of Psalm 69 verse 9 in the Old Testament, speaking in the voice of God's king, zeal for your house will consume me. Not Jesus gentle, meek and mild. No, Jesus zealous for God's house. Now why in the world is Jesus so angry at the worship that's taking place in the temple? Now, the temple is the center of national religion for the Jews. It's the place that they offered sacrifice. But throughout the history of Israel, time and time again, and Philip alluded to this as he was presiding today, they had made a mockery of worship. They had made worship, verse 16, a trade, a business transaction. You see, why were the traders and money changers there? They were there to offer a service. On the Passover, the Jews would come from afar. They would bring animals to offer sacrifice at the temple to remind them of God's great deliverance at the Exodus. Jewish males, 20 years and above, were also obligated to pay the temple tax in the local currency. Now, with the traders and the money changers there, all of their religious obligations would have been made very convenient and very easy. No longer did they have to transport animals all the way from far away to come to the temple and sacrifice. They just had to bring a bit of money, buy an animal and offer it, and and they're done. The obligation is is fulfilled, and, and they have met God's obligation for worship. No longer did they have to trouble themselves in in trying to uh, get the right amount for the tax. They could just bring a bit of money from afar, uh, meet the tax, uh, the the money changer in the temple, and just change it, and voila, it's done. They've met their obligations. You know the problem with that? The problem with that is they were worshiping God with ritual, with money, with sacrifice, but not with their hearts. It had become so convenient. They could just come, pay some money, and their religious obligation is done. It's like you pay someone $200 to attend church on Sunday for you. That's what's happening here. In Isaiah 29 verse 13, the prophet, God speaking through the prophet says this, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's worship as a transaction. God, I give this to you, bare minimum. I've done my dues. Now you bless me. Now you bless me. It's not a zealous worship that says, God, you have done everything for me and therefore I give you my entire heart, life and soul. This is transactional worship. This is worship as a trade. And this is what we fall prone to so often, isn't it? Just let me get the bare minimum. Let me just do the bare minimum. Let me just give you the bare minimum, Lord. I'll keep the rest of myself. But I've done what I can. Yeah, the rest is mine. Okay, can I? We are okay, I got. Transactional worship. And this is what Jesus is upset about. There's no zeal for the true love and worship of mighty God. It's all self-serving. It's all about me meeting my religious obligations it's all about God just leaving me alone with the life that I already have lived. Friend, let me ask you, how much does your Christianity intrude into the life that you live? You're a Christian? Some of you are non-Christians, you're exploring the faith, right? Okay, but those of you who are Christians, how different would your life be if Christ was not Lord? What would change? What would be different? 
some of us have to admit we would still be living pretty much how we're living today. Save for maybe one and a half hours on a Sunday morning. And some of you don't even attend the whole service. You come for half of it. What change takes place in your life because you have become a follower of Jesus Christ? Jesus is challenging here a kind of worship that is merely transactional. It's not zealous. It's not heartfelt. It's just meeting religious obligations. And Jesus shows us that the only way that you can get to this type of zealous worship is not by trying harder. Look at verse 19. After the Jews challenged Jesus about what he did in the temple, he tells them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In verse 21, John explains that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying here that worship that is acceptable to God, worship that is costly, worship that engages the heart, worship that is zealous, must come not from a physical temple or a physical location, but through a person, the person of Jesus Christ who died and rose again for you. In order for your worship to be made zealous, you can't work up that zeal. You need to come to a God who was zealous enough for you to die and rise again. Because friends, the problem with worship is not geographical distance, it's not financial resources. The problem with worship is hearts that love something other than God. And only God can change our hearts and bring us back to give us zeal. Thirdly, and very quickly, true worship is genuine. Look at verse 23. John tells us that many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Praise God, right? Miracle has taken place. People are healed. Water has been turned into wine. And people believe because they saw the signs. Revival, isn't it? Miracle done. People healed. Give all the calls. Sign the card. I want to believe in Jesus. Praise God. We rejoice. It's not what Jesus does. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. It says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Now the phrase entrust himself can also be translated believe. So in the original Greek, there's a play on words here. So one commentator translates it this way. Jesus did not believe they are believing. Jesus did not believe they are believing. And explains why in verse 24. Because Jesus knew all people. And in verse 25, Jesus knew what was in man. He knew their hearts. And he knew that this faith wasn't genuine, heartfelt faith. It was only a faith that believed because they saw the miracles. Because they saw the benefits of what Jesus was bringing. My friends, it's very subtle here. Yes, the signs are supposed to point us to the Messiah, Jesus. But what happens a lot of times is people stay with the signs. They believe because of the miracles. They believe because of the healing. They believe because of all the wonderful things that Jesus gives. But they're never drawn to Jesus for the sake of Jesus. 
It's like marrying someone for the, the person's wealth, not the person's love. It's mercenary, my friends. And all of us are prone to it. You see, Jesus looks into their hearts and he says, you are impressed with me. And you like the things that I give you. But I'm not sure. Well, actually he is sure. But I'm sure he says that your heart is not mine. Friends, true religion, true saving faith comes to Jesus for the sake of Jesus. Not for the sake of the things that Jesus blesses you with. Yes, he will bless you. He will bless you with love. He will bless you with community. He will bless you with friendship. He will bless you with family. He will bless you with all of these wonderful things. But unless these wonderful things bring you to gaze on him and love him for the sake of him, it's mercenary. It's not genuine. And Jesus is saying to us today, True saving faith is genuine. True saving faith loves Jesus and believes in Jesus for the sake of Jesus. And this is what he tells us today, friends. True religion is joyful. It's zealous. And it's genuine. And friends, the only way we can get there, the only way we can get to joyful, zealous, and genuine religion it's if Jesus himself brings us there. And how does he bring us there? He brings us there through his hour. John 1 verse 4. And through his destruction. John 1 verse 19. Friends, what did it take for Jesus to cleanse you from your sin? He didn't just have to turn water into wine, my friends. He had to shed his blood for you on the cross. That's why, friends, wine is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. More than just changing water into wine, he had to shed his precious blood for you on his hour. And friends, what did Jesus have to do to draw you to true, heartfelt, zealous worship? He had to take his body, the true temple in John 1.21, and allow it to be torn apart and broken for you on the cross. Which is another reason why we commemorate the Lord's Supper with the bread as broken. It reminds us, friends, of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And friends, when you look at the hour of Jesus, and you see the destruction of his body, you and I, like that bridegroom, will come to see that we were on the verge of disaster, of shame. And though we could do nothing to save ourselves, Jesus gave of himself to bring us honor, to bring us cleansing, to bring us joy, to bring us zeal, to bring us himself.